Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Carol and I, Lord willing, leave for Israel on Monday, and uh, we're going there. It's all around the house. Uh, that's the major reason we're going there. Although we're hoping to continue some contacts with people and start some contacts with some Israelis. Um, maybe I should have mentioned it for prayer next Sunday night. Hanita and Boaz will be, we'll, we've invited them for dinner. They're coming up for dinner, not, not this coming Sunday, a week from Sunday. And they are coming up for, for dinner to join us. And uh, I, I think I've mentioned, she was the real estate gal, still is the real estate gal, that has been very helpful in us getting the house and working through it. Her husband has a, an extremely rare form of cancer. Uh, one of only like one or two people in in Israel has this, and only a handful of people in the United States. And the only place that treats it is not in Israel, but in the States. So they regularly come to the States. And uh, he had the flu earlier this week, and it really knocked him out because of the cancer issues, but he's doing better. So anyway, they are coming up. Uh, and then uh, the builder, Zion, we are... Uh, Going to have him over probably next Saturday night. He said he would get, he's got two young children, so he said he would get a babysitter for his two young children. And then if it can be worked out, I'm not sure it can on this trip. Joni, uh, if she can come up. Joni was our guide. Um, who, who was on the trip with Joni? Some of you. Um, about the only other, well, I'm not sure, that the only other night probably to have her up would be Thursday night. We're going to be going to uh, Shabbat service. Uh, churches meet on Saturday. Now, Shabbat starts Friday night, so I, I'm still not sure. And I've emailed. What, we're going to be going with Paul. Paul's our worker there to a church in Israel on either Friday night or Saturday morning. So if it's Friday, Saturday morning, well, we could have Joni up on Friday uh, or Thursday. Uh, and we won't get to the house until Wednesday, and we've got to go shopping, and uh, we're going to be pretty busy while we're there, um, shopping to furnish the apartment downstairs, uh, all kinds of stuff that we've got to do. And Lord willing, on Wednesday, we'll be, we'll, we're, we're going in on Tuesday, and we have some friends that we know who are picking us up at the airport we're staying at Halon, uh, which is Tel Aviv, at their house. And then uh, Wednesday, we're going in to meet the attorneys or attorneys to hopefully do a whole bunch of stuff around the house, checking account, 
getting everything turned over to uh, the, 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 um, the electric utilities, getting insurance, liability, property insurance, that type of thing. Uh, ho hopefully they're working on it now. So all, I, all we have to do is show up and sign stuff. We'll see. Then we go up to the house on Wednesday afternoon. And so we're, we're not planning anybody to come by, hopefully, on Wednesday evening. Um, so anyway, we're looking forward to it. We come back a week from Tuesday. We come back into town. So, <clears throat> And Lord willing, uh, I am hoping that this summer we're going to have a, at least a couple of short-term ministry opportunities that teams can come. So if you're interested, and there'll be, there'll be there's small teams, no more than a dozen people, because we have seven bedrooms, and... So we'll have six bedrooms, two twin beds in each bedroom, and the master for uh, the, the leaders on the team. So anyway, you'll, you'll, you'll get more information that down the road. I uh, talked to somebody today, and he can't go this summer. He says, but I'm going to go next summer, 2020. Uh, he said, I'm going to bring my pastor. I said, I'll get that 12 people. Don't worry about it. Uh, he was really excited about the possibility. Short-term ministry teams. And I won't talk about now what you're going to be doing or what the teams will be doing, because I'm not sure what the teams will be doing. A little bit sure, but not completely on that. So, Okay, so we're leaving on Monday. We've got a 7 o'clock flight out of RDU, catching around an 11 o'clock flight in Newark onto Israel as we go. So, But we are in Hebrews. So we're in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 tonight. And Hebrews, one verse, and uh, it's down on your paper, and it reads this way, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, a comely child, a handsome child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Now, the interesting thing of, of this verse here in this faith chapter, it's really not about Moses, so... It's about his parents. Uh, the faith exhibited here is actually that of the parents of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, obviously there's no faith on the part of Moses to be born. Um, uh, the issue is his parents. Uh, he was hid three months of his parents because they, the parents, saw he was a, uh, a proper child, the King James puts it. And they were certainly not afraid, it says, they were not afraid of the king's commandments. So the focus here is not Moses, but his parents and what they did. Now, they're not named here. They're named uh, in two portions or two scriptures of the word of God, Moses' parents, uh, in Exodus 6.20 and Numbers uh, 26.59. Amram took him, Jochebed, his father's sister to wife, and she bare him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137 years. And then in the Numbers passage, the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, whom her mother bare to Levi in Egypt, and she bare unto Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and Miriam, their sister. So Amram and Jochebed are the uh, parents of Moses. And they're the focus here. Uh, godly parents... Uh, the faith that they had, and in, in particular concerning their child. But what we can learn about this. Now, 
the events uh, of Egypt, Pharaoh, Moses, I probably should have put the parents in here, uh, were prov providentially used by God to ensure that his plan for Israel would be completed. And that's uh, ultimately where this faith comes from. It's based, obviously, as we've talked before, on the Word of God. Uh, it is evidenced uh, ultimately in the life of the parents of Moses by what they did. Uh, they were unquestionably students of the Word, believed God. Uh, many Israelites at that time did not. They were uh, Egyptianized, if that's a word. Maybe I can coin it or not. But uh, uh, Moses' parents believed God. So we have that verse. Now, uh, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandments. Now, Exodus 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, gives the, the background to this story of faith. And again, the faith is on the part of the parents. It's the parents and how they, what they did in light of their son, Moses. So I put down a few verses, not all of it. Uh, in verses 15, 16, 17, and verse 22, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives fear God. You could really talk about the faith of the midwives here too. They feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men and children alive. So you can very clearly see uh, this uh, ungodly pagan command. Pharaoh hated um, all of the Israelites at this time, but he didn't want um, any of the male children to live. The midwives wouldn't obey what he said. So Pharaoh charged, verse 22, all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. Now, that's in the background of the story, or some of the background of the story. The death of, the first, the death of all the sons uh, would take place. In Exodus chapter 2, in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 15, 16, and then 21, 23 through 25, it says this. There went a man, there, and there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived <coughs> and bare a son. And when she saw him, that, it was a, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. This is talking about Moses and the parents of Moses. And when she could no longer hide him, she took him for an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to, wit what, to watch what would be done to him. Now, when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. Now, Moses is grown now. Uh, so we've skipped down to Moses being grown. Moses had slain one of Pharaoh's men's, your men. You remember the story. And Pharaoh heard this. He sought to slay Moses. And Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses 
Zipporah, his daughter. Now, the other shepherds who wouldn't help the, the daughters, Moses did. And because he helped uh, the daughters with the watering of their flock, uh, that got favor for him with the father. Moses was invited to come and uh, enjoy the luxury and the hospitality of the family. And he did, and he stayed with them. And over a process of time, uh, Moses gave Zipporah, I'm sorry, not Moses, but um, uh, the priest of Midian uh, gave to Moses Zipporah, his daughter, to wed. In verse 23, And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And then a, a very key verse, verse 24. And God hear, heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. And so the king had died, the latest uh, king of Egypt died, a new pharaoh rises in Egypt, he hates the Jews task massacres over the Jews, uh, and, and the cry goes up, the groaning of, of the children of Israel uh, comes up, and God remembered his covenant. Not that he forgot it, that's not the point. But the point is, I'm going to fulfill that which I promised to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. This is the point in time now that God will set about to deliver the children of Israel through the Passover, you know the whole story of that, and would use Moses in what would happen. Now, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 16, go, we are told, this is to Moses, and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. The term the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is used numerous times in these first couple of chapters. Uh, we saw it at the end of chapter 2 when it talked about the covenant God made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. That's the Abrahamic covenant. So everything that's going to be done in bringing Moses and Aaron... Uh, into Egypt and all the plagues and all that takes place and ultimately coming out is that God had made a promise to Abraham through Isaac through Jacob that he had to fulfill. Now, it is unquestionable in my mind that the parents of Moses uh, understood this covenant. They would have understood the promises that God made to Israel. Now, in, in this whole series of events, there are a couple of things at least in play in this event. Number one, Satan consistently has tried to destroy the line of the Messiah to prevent the Redeemer from coming into the world. This is one of those attempts. Now, so understand, uh, Moses is not in the Messianic line. Moses is from what tribe? Levi. And the Messiah was coming from which tribe? Judah. So Moses being destroyed 
uh, certainly would not step, stop the messianic line from coming to fruition uh, because it's not coming through the Levites, it's coming through Judah. But the attempt was not just the destruction of Moses, all the children of Israel back then. It was the destruction of every son that was born to an Israelite, which would ultimately then stop the lineage. So this was Satan's way of another attempt of trying to destroy the lineage. And up until the coming of Jesus, his birth as prophesied, his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, Satan regularly tried to destroy the Jewish people. Uh, he used the pharaohs. He used the Hamans. He used uh, intermarriage. He used compromise with idolatry. Uh, he used the Herod with the babies in the, uh, in the first century. And time after time after time, uh, Satan tried to destroy the Jewish people. He, had, he knew the Savior was coming into the world. He knew the Redeemer was coming into the world. He knew the promises better than we know the promises. And he attempted to thwart God's plan, to stop it by destroying the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism. Hasn't changed since then. Just the focus is different. If, if Satan can destroy the nation of Israel, there's no, mis there's no people, there's no uh, nation uh, for Jesus to return to. And, all, and then God's a liar. And so we have this uh, history of anti-Semitism since the resurrection that continues to this very hour and will get worse in the days ahead, um, which is satanically produced or empowered. It's so disappointing in, in this country that has been such a friend to the Jewish people, generally speaking, and, and to the nation of Israel since she was born through the centuries, through the decades. Um, when, we, when we see what's happened in, in a large part of our country and, and, and the other major, the Democratic Party, and how they are treating Israel now. Now, there were two bills that were produced, I think, in the Congress or wherever, uh, pro-Israel bills. They voted them down. They were against them. Twice they did it. Very, very uh, sad what's happening. The second event was Amram and Jochebed, the, children, the, the parents of Moses, uh, were convinced. Had to be based on the Word of God because faith is always based on the Word of God. And here God's promise that the Jewish people as a nation were secure. So when we read the verse, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. So really, it's not Moses' faith, it's his parents' faith. And, and they knew that God was going to continue his plan for the Jewish people. And they were willing to stand up against Pharaoh and the decrees of Pharaoh against the nation of Israel. And when they did that, they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Now, again, what was the commandment that the king gave? Kill the babies, boys, murder them. Now, turn your page over. What I want us to consider then, in what way 
did the parents of Moses show faith in their actions? Well, the first thing we can go back to is Genesis 9, 6, where we are told this. Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Mankind, humans, men and women, are uniquely different than all of God's creation. Um, if one would murder a man, the mur the, then there's, there's capital punishment that God requires for that individual. Whoever sheds man's blood kills a man, murders a man. By man, justice needs to be meted out in that individual who did the murder, dying himself. And the reason is the last part of verse 6. For in the image of God made he man. We shouldn't be cruel to anybody, animals or whatever. But if one would kill an animal, unquestionably, the punishment should not be nearly as much as is, is for murdering a man, somebody made in the image of God. Animals are not made in the image of God. They don't have a spirit. They don't have a spirit. Now, they have a soul. Soul is different than the spirit. Uh, soul is, uh, both of those you, you can't touch. Uh, but animals don't have a, a spirit. <clears throat> but the soul is, 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 is emotions, feelings. Um, and animals can show emotion. They can love, they can hate, they can show that type of thing. But they do not have the ability to communicate with God. They don't have a spirit. You know, it's been suggested that man is a uh, triune being, which I agree with. Some would say the soul and the spirit is the same thing. I don't think so. Because we are made in the image of God. God is a triune being. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We, man, mankind, made in the image of God, is a triune being. Body, soul, spirit. Our soul is our emotions or our intellect as well. Animals have intellect to a limited degree, certainly. They're not curing cancer. Neither is man for that matter right now. Um, but at least we can attempt to and, and, and maybe one day do that. Uh, but the soul is, the, is the, the intellect, the emotions, that type of thing. Uh, the body is obvious. But the spirit is how we communicate with God. So we are a triune. Animals don't do that. They are, they are body and soul. And so there's a uniqueness to mankind because we're made in the image of God. And capital punishment should be part of any just nation's law system. Genesis 9, verse 6 has never been done away with. It's never been abrogated, never been canceled. 
it is just as true today as it was the day it was penned. There should be capital punishment. Now, the Bible talks about two or three witnesses uh, before justice can be meted out. Um, but I hope we never do away with capital punishment in the U.S. I know there are states that have done away with it. But biblically, if you take a man's life, if you murder, not manslaughter, not accidental death, which you should call, could call manslaughter, but if you murder somebody, you should pay for that with your life, is what the scripture says. So, what did Pharaoh command the Israelites, all the people to do, and, and, and the Israelites? Kill the babies. So turn off over all the boys. Even, even if mom and dad didn't put the knife to the baby's jugular vein, by turning over the baby, would they have been complicit in that baby's death? Yeah. So could they do, biblically speaking, could they do that if they wanted to honor God? No. Moses' parents understood that. And so uh, they put him in a basket, floated him down the river. The sister, watch what was happening of Moses. Uh, and again, you know the story, the daughter of Pharaoh and so on. So they ultimately disobeyed the commandment of the authorities because the word of God was broken. In doing so then, they were not afraid. And, and I don't think it's an issue here of being caught or not being caught. I think it's an issue of this is what God wants. God's in charge, and I'm going to trust him. <clears throat> we may ultimately come to that point in this country, society. I, I know we will. Now, whether we'll be alive or not is another thing. Um, where we're going to be asked to um, certainly disobey the word of God, perhaps even to the point of being complicit in murder. What will you do? This is what this lesson is going to be around. What would you do if you were brought to that point in this society and commanded to be complicit, turning someone over. Think of, think of Germany. You know, if, if you were, had a Jewish neighbor or a Jewish friend, or uh, if you turned that Jewish person in, well, you knew what was going to happen to him. You would be complicit in the murder. Um, so they were not afraid, not that they thought that God would necessarily protect them, but they were in the will of God. And they were comfortable. They were settled in their heart that this was the correct thing to do. Thirdly, they followed the will of God. And ultimately, the world was greatly blessed by the ministry of Moses. So what I want us to consider then, when is it right for, for believers to act like Moses' parents in the disobedience to civil authority? Because, again, I think it's coming in our society. Um, we see rumblings of it now with the progressive movement, the liberals in our country, the Democrats in our country, um, the attack on, on faith-based things. Um, and it's low-keyed right now. Uh, you know, it, it's the type of thing, you know, supposedly, uh, you know, they're talking about uh, a new Supreme Court justice perhaps 
in the near future because Ruth Bader Ginsburg has uh, cancer and is missed for the first time, maybe in her entire time on the Supreme Court, uh, being at the court and hearing some cases being presented and that type of thing. Um, and one of the one of the possibilities, uh, I think it's Amy Barrett, whatever her name is, who's very Catholic. I think it's her. But some of the some of the liberals uh, are very much opposed to her. And I'm not saying Catholics are believers. That's not the point here. But very much opposed to her. And it was her, or somewhere else. I may be getting my people that they, they grilled, and Diane Feinstein grilled about being a member of the Knights of Columbus and, and that type of thing. Well, according to our Constitution, there is no right whatsoever uh, to ask somebody about their religious affiliation when considered for that type of position. It's happening. Uh, we look at uh, maybe half of our country who doesn't think the, the Constitution means what it says or shouldn't mean what it says or whatever the case may be. All of that to say, all of this is coming to us, uh, and we're going to be faced with it. Now, so, when is it right to disobey authority, civil authority? Uh, there are three possible positions that we can choose from. Uh, number one is anarchism. Uh, anarchism is it's always right to disobey uh, and to rebel. doesn't matter what the thing is, what the cause is, uh, what the issue is, if you want to obey or disobey, you have the right to disobey uh, civil authority. Uh, and our anarchist is just, there's, there's lawlessness at that point, and it's just uh, it's a free for all, is what it comes down to. Now that's easy to recognize. There's no biblical justification at all for that. Um, a lot of people on the left are essentially anarchists. When you have the Antifa, which is the fascists, they're anarchists. They're overthrowing governments and that type of thing. And it's all around the world, the yellow vests in France, and you may not like the government, uh, but anarchy is not a biblical position to take. But that is a position, that is a possibility uh, that you could say, okay, I believe at any point, at any time, for any reason, I can rebel against the government if I don't like what they're doing. Well, I don't think you can find at all a biblical article. Uh, the second is often referred to as radical patriotism. Radical patriotism. Uh, it's never right. The government, you know, God bless the king, uh, long live, you know, whatever. Uh, so it's never right to rebel. It's never right to disobey authority. Um, and, and the reasons that are given, uh, there are biblical reasons that are given. God ordained government, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Um, and the, imp the implication in the shedding of blood there is that you have to have some kind of authority. And that's understood to be the uh, institution in Genesis chapter 9 of governmental rule that you have to have some kind of body that will decide whether someone is guilty or not of murder, and then you need that body to take that man's life as a result of the murder. And so Genesis 9 and 9-6 looks at the, uh, the institution of government, and uh, certainly government would flourish 
uh, and has through the centuries at that time. So the argument is, well, God ordained government and has commanded man to submit to government. Now, look at Romans 13. I, I, we need to read it at least once because that's a very uh, important passage of Scripture. So take your Bibles, Romans 13, 1 through 7. <clears throat> In verse 1 especially, and, and verse 4 especially, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Now, the higher powers here are talking about the rulers over us, the civil authorities, the government that we're under there. And every one of those are subject, uh, are ordained by God. And so whosoever then, verse 2, resists the power, government, resist the ordinance of God. And they that re resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, thou shalt have praise of the same. If, you, if you're evil in a society, the government's going to come down on you hard. You should be afraid of them. But if you do good, the government will speak well of you. Well, obviously, that's not always the case, right? Verse 4, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. The government is given the right to have the, the, the weapons to carry out uh, the duties that they have and to minister justice. Biblical days, it was the sword. Today, it would be guns. For he is the minister of God. A revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. <coughs> for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor is due. And so the argument on the radical patriotism is that, hey, God has ordained the government. God has brought it into existence. We are commanded to submit, and we need to submit uh, no matter what takes place uh, in that government because he is the minister uh, of, of God to thee for uh, good. And if you're good, you won't have any problems. Uh, now, there's... Uh, problem with this. Uh, we're not going to look at Titus 3.1. You can look at it uh, later. But here's some reasons why this is not valid. God did not ordain governments evil. And we do not need to obey their evil laws. Romans 13.4, which we just read, he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do which is evil, be afraid. So God has established the government to uh, support the good and combat the evil. And obviously, I think that that would be understood in a biblical value system. One does not def define evil and good outside the Word of God. Remember what Isaiah said in chapter 5? Uh, and I think we have the same thing in this day. They, they, it, when they'll, they'll get to the point where... 
where um, night is day and day is night, and good is evil and evil is good, because they do it with the, uh, the thinking of man. That's wrong. So good and evil is only defined properly by the word of God. Um, and that's across the board. Homosexuality is a sin. Because God says it's a sin. And there's a small Presbyterian church, maybe you read about that, in, in uh, I think it's in Northern California, in a farming community that put out um, on their on their sign outside, uh, you know, it said, um, I remember all it said, but one of the things that homosexuality is still a sin and the Bible is still true. And there was one other phrase they had. Oh, yes, Bruce Jenner is still a man. Homosexuality is still a sin. And the Bible is still true. I think that was the last thing. This, the, well, they, they just opened up a Pandora's box. Uh, they're being picketed. Sunday, they're going to have all kinds of people from the LGBT da, 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 community uh, picketing them. Uh, they're hateful. They're despiteful. They're bigots, you know, that type of thing. Um, well, the sign is 100% correct. Um, Bruce Jenner is still a man. Homosexuality is still a sin. And the Bible is still true. And you can add a whole lot of stuff to that. Homosexual marriage is not marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Abortion is not a woman's choice. It's murder. Uh, and, and, you know, we could go down the list and all of that. Uh, you know, God makes the rules, not man. Um, so uh, the radical patriotism view is not correct. Uh, midwives, we talked about that, did not kill innocent babies, even though the government told them to, and that was the Egyptian government. Uh, the, he, nor did the Hebrew children, uh, Daniel and his compatriots, worship idols. But what was the decree of the king? Worship idols. Bow down. They wouldn't do it because it broke the word of God. So we see in the Word of God that radical, what, what you can call radical patriotism is never right. And, um, and I would even submit to you, we, we, we need to be careful about patriotism as well. Um, what's, what, where is our, yes, we're citizens of this country, but where is our primary citizenship? Heaven. And we are called, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be ambassadors for Christ in this world. T turn to 2 Corinthians 5. <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, we'll just pick it up. Um, talking about a new creation, verse 17. Verse 18, all, and all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So those who have been born again, those who are in Christ, those who are a new creation, <coughs> um, God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, 
and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God is committed to believers. If you're a child of God, he's committed to you, he's committed to me, the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? Representative. Who does the ambassador represent? the country that he lives in, and he's specifically sent by whom to that foreign land? He's sent by the king, or in our country, the president, the head of state, if you will. The ambassador is one who represents, and when the, when the ambassador goes, if you would be picked to be the ambassador to Switzerland, and you went to Switzerland, do you get involved in the affairs the political affairs of Switzerland? You shouldn't. No, because you're representing President Trump or whoever the president at the time, the United States. We, God, has appointed each one of us as ambassadors. We are in a foreign land. What is the foreign land that we, right here, are in? Well, the world, but let's get more specific about it. The United States. It's, it's a foreign land for, for believers. We are ambassadors to the United States. If you lived in Mexico, you'd be ambassador to Mexico and so on. We're in the United States. So your primary calling and citizenship is in heaven and God's ambassador to this country. And although, yes, we have citizenship in this country, that's not our first priority. Our first priority is our citizenship in heaven. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did, did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. And so we are to represent God, pleading with people to be reconciled to God. We're representing Jesus. We are his mouthpiece. That's our calling, because we're citizens of heaven. <clears throat> so the radical patriotism position certainly is not correct, but we have to be very careful about just how much, how patriotic do we want to be? You know, we've been blessed in this country overall. But our country in the last, I don't know, when was Roe versus Wade adjudicated? 73? In the last 20, 30, what would it, 46 years, wow. 46 years. I don't know the number. 60 million, 70 million children have been murdered. Legally. By, by our politicians. By our country. Our country recently has now put a stick in the eye of God, as it were and for the first time in history has legalized homosexual marriage. It's our country. You want to brag about our country? How can you do that if you're a Bible? And, and, and you, you know, euthanasia and, and so on. So we've got to be very careful about patriotism um, in, our, in our country. Um, but radical patriotism certainly is not correct. Uh, obedience to the government is not on 
qualified. For example, look at Acts 4.19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God judge you. What were they told? Don't, don't preach the gospel. You can leave, but don't tell anybody about Jesus. What was their response? You, you can choose. You can tell me what's right in the sight of God. Whether we listen to you, the authorities, and not tell people about Jesus, or we listen to God and obey him and tell people about Jesus. So, obviously, they did what? They refused the dictates of the authorities, and they taught people about Jesus. They disobeyed the direct command of a civil authority over them. So, obedience is not unqualified then. Now, the third position is biblical submission to government. Maybe just the title is not good because, you know, by lack of, uh, by use of the title, well, certainly you want to be biblically submissive, right? But this, I believe, is the, uh, is the proper position. Sometimes it's right to disobey government. Not always, and sometimes the flip side of that, sometimes it would be wrong. Now, in this area, you have two subviews. You have the anti-promulgation position and the anti-compulsion position. Now, the first one, the anti-promulgation position, promulgate is to publish. In other words, to, to enact laws. You know, can be about anything. It can be, you know, the law that was enacted in Acts chapter 4 uh, was uh, don't witness. That would be the compulsion position. Now, Christians have a right to disobey authority when a law or action is initiated that is contrary to God's word. So, the anti-promulgation position is that whenever there's an, uh, a law that is passed that is contrary to the word of God, Bible-believing Christians have the right to disobey government and to fight against that law, break the law to change that law. That's the anti-promulgation position. The anti-compulsion position. Compulsion is the act of driving or urging by force, physical or moral. And where this comes down is Christians have a right to disobey authority when a law or action is initiated that commands one to do something contrary to God's word. Now, no, catch the distinction between these two positions. The first one, the anti-promulgation position, is a law that is passed that says something can be done but does not command us to do it. The second one is a law that is passed that commands us to do it. For example, in the um, anti-compulsion position where we would be against it, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but in China... For many years in the past, uh, you could only have what one, one, one girl child. You have as many boys as you want. 
uh, one, I think it was one girl child, or just one child, okay, one child. Uh, if you had a second child then, what did you have to do? You have to kill it. That's a, that's that's the compulsion. Now, what would you do as a believer if, if you had a second child? Would you kill that child? That's kind of like the midwives or what was taking place in in, in Egypt. No, that's compul that's compelling you to do something that's opposite of what the Word of God says. Compelling you. Now, the anti-promulgation, it's a law that is passed that you may not like, but it but does not compel you to do it. And the, the example of that, for example, in our country would be abortion. I don't like the abortion law. Any Bible-believing Christian should not like the abortion law that gives the right to people to have an abortion. But what it doesn't do is compel people to have an abortion. And so even though that we don't like it, the argument then is we have no right to overthrow the government because we don't like that law or fight against the government because we don't like that law. Now, if they would compel us to have an abortion, like in China, to kill the child, whether it's preborn or, or not, then we have every right to disobey. And that's the difference between these two views. Uh, the anti-promulgation position <clears throat> They're against any law that is against the Word of God. Uh, and in the past, you had uh, organizations like um, Terry, I can't remember his last name, uh, picketed the abortion clinics and uh, chained themselves to it. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. They would take the anti-promulgation position. So what are some of the arguments for the anti-promulgation position? In other words, when a law is published or made by a civil authority uh, in our country, it would be Congress and becomes the law of the land. Why, uh, according to them, is it right then to actively disobey? Well, their argument is that the power of government is not absolute, which is true. God's law is king, not the government, would be their argument. Well, is is that true in a secular society or in or in in a in a in a civil authority that God's law is king and not the government? No, no. Let me when Paul and I mentioned it later on wrote Romans chapter thirteen. What government was he living under? Rome. Do you remember who the King, the head of the government was at that time when he wrote that? Who? No, not Agrippa, Rome. Rome. Agrippa was a, was a uh, well, he was a local underling. He was not, he was like a, a governor or a mayor. You know, he, was, he was not the major authority. Who was the power in Rome? Caesar, Nero. Caesar, yes. But Caesars are different Caesars. Nero. Nero was a despot, was a murderer. Was, we think he was, he was extremely anti-godly. He hated God. He hated Christians. 
He, he, he persecuted people, had them killed, and yet under Rome and Nero's rule, Paul wrote, obey the government. Wow. Now, God's law is king, not the government. That's not true for governments. The law, what is the only time that God's law is going to be king? The kingdom. Now, now we've looked at this before at different times. God has re- re- ruled at different times over different entities. Um, that's what God's kingdom. In the earlier scripture, where did God rule? Well, well, I didn't want to go back that far. But yeah, he, he, he ruled over Adam and Eve. That was a theocracy. God was in charge and they rebelled. Uh, but ultimately government would come along and God would ultimately establish a theocracy. What was the theocracy he established? Israel. And he gave Israel a set of laws, right? We call those laws what? Commandments, but who wrote them? Who gave them? The Mosaic Laws. Uh, thou sh- uh, and ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on. But there's all kinds of laws. And Israel as a nation, because it was a theocracy, were under God's laws and required to follow them. Was Babylon required to follow those laws? Assyria? Egypt? Any of the other nations of the world? No. God had his theocracy in Israel. God's kingdom today, or his theocracy, theocracy today, resides where? In the church. Who's the head of the church? God. Christ, yeah. He's the head of the church. Have we been given laws to follow? Yeah, the law of Christ. Do those laws have any authority over unsaved people or the secular world? No. God, God, God is only the ruler over his people in the church. We should follow them, but we shouldn't expect the world to follow them. And to try to make the world to line up with what God wants the church to do is a fruitless endeavor. It ain't going to happen. But in our lives and in your local church's life, uh, it should be how you operate. But the world has never followed God's way. So God's law is king, not the government. It was true in ancient Israel, and that's how they were supposed to run the government. It's true in the church today. It'll be true in the kingdom when Jesus returns, but it's not true in secular government. That's the supreme law. Secondly, the law, in essence, the law of God is above the government. The Christian's obedience then is to the government only as they follow God's law. Well, this kind of fits in with what we just talked about. You know, it, it's, you know, it's, you know, God bless Sarah Palin. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. Uh, you know, it just doesn't work. You know, you, you, you cannot expect secular governments to follow God's law. Now, there's a whole element of Christendom, dominion theology, post-millennialism, that believes that is exactly what God wants us to do, to make the world Christian 
to set up every government that we are governed by the laws of God. That is just plain wrong. Second statement argument for is just wrong. Point number three, they would argue, governments which rule contrary to God's law are tyrannical. Thus, Christians should not obey government's law. Well, is every law that the government makes that is against uh, God's law a tyrannical law? No. Tyranny is when there's something, compulsion, they come after you. That's just not true. Christians should resist tyrannical governments. Christians have a moral obligation to resist ungodly governments. It was Paul who wrote, Submit to Rome and Nero. Point number five they would make is resistance takes two forms, protest and force. Christians should first protest, and if that does not work, they should use force as necessary. And uh, there is a segment of the country today, Christians who are on the verge of taking up arms against the government because they see protest is not working. I don't believe we should have anything to do with that. Go to the next page. The anti-compulsion position. What are the arguments for this? There are biblical examples of disobedience of government. Every single one of them have the same element. There's a command, not just a law, a compulsion, a command by the authorities that is contrary to the word of God. And the second element is that command was disobeyed. And there's a distinction between a law and a command. Exodus 1, kill the babies. They refused to kill the babies. Exodus chapter 5, don't worship God. They refused that command not to worship God, and they worshiped God. Daniel chapter 3, again, command was to worship an idol. They refused to worship an idol. Acts chapter 4, the command was to stop proclaiming the gospel. They refused that command. And so every time in the Bible there was a disobedience to the government authority, it was because there was a compulsion. There was a command, not just a law, a command or a compulsion, and they disobeyed that. That's the difference between the promulgation and the compulsion position. None of us, again, should like abortion. None of us should, none of us should like, take homosexual, let's move off of abortion for a second. Homosexual marriage. We got both of these in play in our country. One position is that we have now legalized homosexual marriage. And if a man wants to marry a man or a woman wants to marry a woman, that is legal in the United States of America. That's the law of the land. I don't like it. I think it's unbiblical. But they're not forcing me to marry... Oh, I'm not even going to say it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Bob, thank you. I would reject that. I would rebel. Totally. They're not forcing any man to marry another man or a woman to marry another. They're making it a, a, an open law, the opportunity. Now, but in this whole homosexual marriage thing, though, some homosexuals have gone into bakers who are Christians. You know about it, the masterpiece in Colorado. And they are trying to force them to bake a cake for a homosexual marriage. That's compulsion. If the homosexuals want to get married, I think it's wrong. I think it's unbiblical. I think it's not healthy for our country. But hey, it's a free country. But when they come in and they say, you've got to bake a cake for us, for this homosexual marriage, that's compulsion. That should be resisted. Not the first, but the second. And that's what's playing out. And that's, that, that's really a good, probably the best illustration of these two positions. I don't like either, but we don't actively fight against homosexual marriage laws when I, by rebellion and trying to overthrow the government. But we do actively disobey civil authorities when we're forced to bake a cake for a homosexual marriage and that's against our biblical belief system. There's the difference uh, that we have. A command versus, or a law versus a command. And there's a difference. I think the biblical position, again, and the, and the example is always that there is a command to break the law of God. You actively resist that. So how should one disobey authorities? There's a couple of ways, few ways. <clears throat> Refuse to obey it nonviolently. Midwives, Daniel, all these examples we have, they just refuse to do it nonviolently. You don't do it, but it doesn't mean you pick up a gun and take it out on them and shoot them. Um, and we, we see too much of that in our country with, I'm not even sure the biblical Christians, but in the name of religion, they, they shoot um, uh, the, uh, what's the AFT? What's the, uh, no, not Antifa, the government agency, arms, um, what's that? Yeah, ATF, that stands for tobacco and firearms. Yeah, and that we have killed some of them. Um, and did they go overboard probably in what they did? Yes. But it's not right to fight back and shoot and kill because you don't like what they're doing. So you refuse to obey it violently. Uh, we've got examples of that in the Bible. <coughs> Flee. That's an option. We have Israel fleeing Egypt. We have Elijah who fled from Jezebel. We have Joseph and Mary with Jesus fleeing to Egypt. Flee. If you don't like the law, leave. Move to wherever. Flee. That's, that's, that's a one way to disobey. Thirdly, accept its punishment. Jesus, John the Baptist. 
You can stand up for what's righteous. You don't violently oppose. But then you've got to accept the punishment that comes if you stand up for what's right. And so you can choose to accept the punishment when you stand up for righteousness. Those are three ways to disobey. Now, we are going to be, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a son of a prophet, but I really think in the days ahead, we will be confronted, uh, for those of us who live long enough, uh, by our government forcing us to do things that the Bible speaks against doing, or the Bible tells us to do, and the government says, don't do. We have three options. Don't do don't, don't do it, but refuse nonviolently, flee, or just accept the punishment as you speak out against it. <clears throat> what else can we do in response to oppression? Now, before we look at these four things, I, I want to, um, on, the, on, the, on the third page that you have, I think I mentioned this before. There's a pastor in China. His name is... Wang Yai, or Wang Yi, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Back in September 21st, he wrote a letter of last year, which was revised uh, on October 4th. And he let it be known that if he would disappear, that 48 hours after his disappearance, that this letter should be published. Well, over 100 members of this church, the Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China, were arrested Sunday, December 9th. The time of the publication of this translation, arrests are still being made. Among those taken away were Pastor Wang Yi, senior pastor of Early Rain, his wife, Yang Rong, who have not been heard from since Sunday. I, I researched it today, couldn't find any update on what has happened. Foreseeing this circumstance, Pastor Wang Yi wrote the declaration below to be published by his church should he be detained for more than 48 hours. In it, he explains the meaning and necessity of faithful disobedience, how it is distinct from political activism or civil disobedience, and how Christians should carry it out. We thank, I just copied this, Brent Pinkall and Army, Amy Young for their contributions in translating this letter because it was written in Chinese. I don't know what this guy believes, this Pastor Yi. Uh, I don't know what the church believes, but he nailed it <laughs> on, on what he told the congregation. You can read the whole things later. I just want to read what's in yellow. <clears throat> on the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings. This is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements for God in China. Now he goes on and, and says he doesn't like the Chinese government, he doesn't like their policies, but he respects them because of their God-ordained position. Go down to the next yellow. But this does not mean that my personal disobedience and the disobedience of the church is in any sense fighting for rights or political activism in the form of civil disobedience. <clears throat> because I do not have the intention of changing any institutions or laws of China as a pastor. The only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by this faithful disobedience and the testimony it bears for the cross of Christ. 
as a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world. Not to change the world. But to testify about another world. For the mission of the church is only to be the church and not to become a part of any secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. From a positive perspective, all acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world, heaven. The Bible teaches us that in all manners relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. This is why I'm not interested in changing any political or legal institutions in China. I'm not even interested in the question of when the communist regime's policies persecuting the church will change. Regardless of which regime I live under now or in the future, as long as the secular government continues to persecute, persecute the church, violating human consciences that belong to God alone, I will continue my faithful disobedience. For the entire commission God has given me is to let more Chinese people know through my actions that the hope of humanity and society is only in the redemption of Christ in the supernatural, gracious sovereignty of God. In other words, I'm just going to share the gospel. They don't want me to, that's what I'm going to do. Turn it over. Down to the next yellow portion. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children. Ruin my reputation. Destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal, living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant, and I am in prison because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God. And I will joyfully violate all laws, laws that violate God's laws. Read the whole thing later. I think he's right on when it comes to understanding the world system, political systems, 
and his, and I would say it's not only for pastors, it's for everyone who names Christ. And like Moses' parents, they were not afraid. I would submit to you, he's not afraid. He's probably since December, what, 8th when he was abducted, 9th over the last month, probably been tortured in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. May God give him and the other hundred of his church and whomever the grace to withstand that torture and be a testimony of the grace of God in Jesus Christ to his tormentors that they might find the Savior. Amen. What else can we do in response to oppression? We can do exactly what Pastor Yee has done. We are told we can obey its laws. Romans 13, 1. When it doesn't contradict the word of God. We can pray for oppressive governments. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. It tells us that we are to pray for kings and those that are in authority. Now, some would suggest, and I have a difficulty with this. I put this down because some suggest this. That we can work peacefully and legally to change it. And what is normally quoted is James 4.17 and Galatians 6.10. Uh, James 4.17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I don't think it has anything in that context to do with changing the laws of a political system. Uh, and I have no problem if somebody wants to work peacefully and legally to change it. Uh, I'm just not sure that's the best use of one's time as a child of God. This option, the third option, it's not found in the scriptures. You won't find it mentioned anywhere. To peacefully and legally change the world system. Earlier in chapter 4 of James, we are told that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Why are you going to try to join the world and change its laws? Thus, this may not be the wisest or best use of our time. As Pastor Yu said, I, I don't care what China does politically, whether it's communistic or non-communistic. That's not what God's called me to do. If I might put the words of 2 Corinthians 5 in his mouth, God's called me to be ambassador to tell people about Jesus. But God's called every one of us, not just pastors, to be an ambassador. So I'm not certain. I don't believe point number three is, is the best way to go. <clears throat> number four, patiently endure suffering. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange things happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. When we live for Christ and if we suffer for it, uh, we are to endure it patiently with joy. May God grant those Chinese Christians that ability. Turn the page over. Is revolution ever justifiable? Some would argue yes. I don't believe it is scripturally. 
Some approve of, uh, Scripture approves of some revelation. This would be the article, 2 Chronicles 22. The one incident in Scripture is a God-appointed revolution. You can read it later. But that was unique. It was necessary because what they were trying to do was to kill the last child that could be on the throne of David, destroy the Messianic line. And God had them raise up to stop that. Without revolution, the argument is, tyranny reigns. Well, God is sovereign. God puts up one, puts down another. We need to trust in God and not our resources. Three, if some wars are just, why not some revolutions? Wars are fought by God-ordained governments. Revolutions are fought by citizens against the government. And four, we are only to obey governments that follow God's moral laws is the argument. Paul wrote Romans 13 again, 1 through 7, when Nero was the authority. He certainly was not following God's laws. There are many Christians, like Ken, who believe revolution is right at times for believers. I don't believe it ever is. We represent Christ. We're his ambassador. We are not to get entangled in the affairs of the world. Generally, those Christians who believe in revolution come from an amillennial or a post-millennial position, not a dispensational. The end doesn't justify the means. We can rationalize what we want to do, but are we going to be pragmatists? But Ken, Ken, really, are we going to be pragmatists? <clears throat> okay, wait a second, Ken. There's a couple of questions. couple of questions. Are we to be biblicist or pragmatist? Number one. God has given the right to arms to the government, not to the citizens to overthrow the government. You will yes, not... Okay, give me a verse of scripture for that. Where? He will overthrow. Who does he use to overthrow these tyrannical governments? Give me a verse of scripture. Give me a passage of scripture. We just read them. Which one? Let's go back to Romans 13. Let's go back to Romans 13. <clears throat> Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, which is the government. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. The powers there is the government. And we are not to resist that government. For he... Okay. Okay, who is the minister of God to thee for good? The government. If thou do that which is evil, no, 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 look at the text. Okay. You'll have to answer to God for what you do. I'll have to answer to God for what I, I teach and believe. Yeah. Clearly, in here, the minister of God to thee for good is the government. It's the ruling authority. And if you obey the ruling authority, the government shouldn't give you a problem. But if you do evil, 
be afraid of the government because the government will build, bring the sword against you. Where does it say that? Where, do, where does it say that? So. The evil government, the Germans didn't revolt, right? But other governments beat them into war. And so, some of the Germans did revolt. How did they revolt? They hid the Jews, they, they tried to get them out of the country, that type of way. But governments came up against an evil government and waged war. But the Germans that did... So, okay. we have this thing in our constitution called the Second Amendment. I understand that. I understand that. God-given document that allows us to take up arms and oppose of an evil, tyrannical government. Okay. Let's, let's, uh, we're going to stop this in a second. Is the Declaration of Independence, our constitution, a God-given document? Yes. Okay. No, no. We have one God-given document, the Bible. Um, we have one God-given document, the Bible. It's a great document, the Constitution, but it's not God-given. It's not God-breathed. We cannot add to or take away from the Word of God. We've got to, if, if we're going to claim to follow the God and be Christians, Bible-believing Christians, we've got to make the Bible our authority. Okay, so. That's right. <laughs> God. reason, Mark, why God raised up this nation. So. Okay. There was a reason. Nations, nations. Why God gave us freedom of religion. No. Okay? And that freedom of religion didn't come because we didn't take up arms and oppose a tyrannical government who would have forced us into their government uh, approved religion. Nations have a right to wage war. Christians do not have a biblical right to revolt against their government. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. None of the first church did. They did not have the Second Amendment to the Constitution. Oh, okay. Okay. Let Let's close. I I, I only believe in one God-given book, uh, not two. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Um, let's Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for the Word of God. Lord, it's a Bible study. And Lord, sometimes we have to make decisions that go against the, the culture, even that we've been raised. Um, but the Bible is our guide. It's our light. Help us to be Bible believers and follow it. Lord, bless our time together. Bless the refreshments. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson. Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, 
or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.